Hello, everybody. Before we commence with episode 10, I'd like to start off by apologizing for the delay. These past two weeks have been pretty busy for me. You know, I just moved into a new apartment, and I had to put off writing and recording until I was fully settled in. But now I'm back, and ready to dedicate as much time as possible to finishing this first season of the show. I'd also like to point out that, as some of you may have noticed by now, I sound a little bit different. And that's because I'm recording in a more open area, and well, there's not really much I can do about it. I don't think it affects the sound quality that much, and I'll try to keep things as clear and crisp as possible going forward, but this is just how the show is going to sound for the time being. And the last thing we should cover here is just a brief content warning, because this episode will, as per usual with the Sicilian Wars, go over some pretty dark aspects of ancient life. So, if that's something that's triggering to you, go ahead and skip around in the episode, or catch me in the next one. Alright, on with the show. Welcome to Wonders of History. Season 1, Episode 10, A Forgotten Crisis. Today's episode is going to be about something that I never imagined it would be. See, when I set out to tell the story of Carthage, I knew I'd be talking a lot about the Seven Sicilian Wars that overshadowed its foreign policy from the 400s to the 200s BC. I just never thought that there would be so much to tell. For those of you who have all been following along with me over the course of nine previous episodes, you'll know that last time we reached Agathocles' invasion of North Africa. Now, it wasn't like I didn't know I was going to have to talk about this. I mean, Agathocles is the cause of one of the largest Sicilian wars there ever was. Again, it's just, I never thought that there'd be so much to tell. So much drama, so much character development, so much plot. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Carthage is not a historical topic that most people let alone most historians even, are well-versed in. At least, not as much as something like the Roman Empire. If you want to learn anything about the Carthaginians, you're going to be reading the same set of books as everyone else in your position. And don't get me wrong, those books are all excellent in their own ways, but when you read them, you start to notice something. About like half of each book is about the Punic Wars and the Punic Wars alone. All the history before that period, the split between Carthage and Tyre, the rise of the Magonids, Carthaginian exploration, the Sicilian Wars, is mostly bereft of detail. I mean, seriously, sometimes I'll flip through one of these few books that they have on Carthage, and they'll cover subjects that I've dedicated hour-long episodes to in, like, a couple pages. But hey, I mean, I guess that's kind of the mark of a good historian, right? that they're able to condense archaeological evidence and primary sources and speculation and then turn it into a concise, coherent overview. And again, you know, those historians and archaeologists who do study Carthage are all incredibly talented, and I respect them immensely for dedicating their time to such a mysterious and obscure civilization. But at the same time, where did all that detail go? How am I able to write these one-hour-long episodes on topics like the Sicilian Wars? 
Well, it turns out that the detail, the drama, the stuff, whatever you want to call it, is there. It's just in the primary sources. Justin, Diodorus Siculus, Timaeus. However questionable the veracity of their accounts may be, you just can't deny that it's just so full of life. So, what's my point? What am I trying to say here? Well, today I'm going to tell you all about a crisis. Last episode, I actually called it one of the greatest existential threats that Carthage ever faced. It's something that, had you been there, had you lived through these two years yourself, the rest of your life, your entire outlook on the world, really, would be shaped by them. And yet, in the history books, it's always just breezed through in a paragraph. This forgotten crisis was, of course, the invasion of North Africa by Agathocles. Without giving too much away, Agathocles' act of desperation opened a Pandora's box of pillage, uprising, and destruction right in Carthage's backyard. And Carthage's backyard, despite the superficial perception of North Africa as dry and barren in the West, was chock full of people. For the duration of this episode, please remember that just because we don't have the names of all these people, that doesn't mean we should erase their humanity. They lived through this crisis. This crisis put fear in their hearts. Sometimes it tore up their homes. Other times they died caught up in the middle of it. Let's honor the memory of these forgotten people by remembering them and their trauma in more than just a paragraph. Last time, we left things off with a truly momentous cliffhanger. Agathocles had made it to the walls of Carthage, and on the streets inside of those walls, pandemonium set in. Remember, this was like the worst nightmare of literally every citizen in Carthage, from the elites of the Council of 104 to the voters in the People's Assembly. The last time there was even a threat of invasion, just a threat, from a Syracusan tyrant, all the way back after the first battle of Himera, the Carthaginians radically altered their government. That's where the institution of the Council of 104 even came from, to prevent this exact situation. So, you best believe that the citizens of Carthage are about to take drastic action once more. And this time, they will turn to religion rather than politics in their time of need. Carthage, according to Diodorus Siculus, quote, betook themselves to every manner of supplication of the divine powers, end quote. This involved an exorbitant donation in the form of both precious artwork and liquid cash to the temple of Melkart in Tyre. Back when it still had colonial ties to the Phoenician homeland, Carthage used to regularly provide a good chunk of its state income to the temple, both in the name of the heroic protector Melkart and, of course, diplomatic solidarity. But this practice had been, well, out of practice for a while, and now that annihilation loomed, the Carthaginians started to wonder if it was this slight to Melkart that was the cause of all their troubles. And then, they wondered if Baal Hamon and Tinnit felt the same way too. I mean, you gotta cover all your bases if you're a polytheist, right? But Baal Hamon demanded a much steeper price than silver and gold from his devotees. Here we arrive at our first instance of mass child sacrifice in the historical record. Diodorus has a horrid description of how the process worked that I want to do justice to. So, let me read it to you. 
Quote, they also alleged that Kronos, he's talking about Baal Hamon there, had turned against them inasmuch as in former times they had been accustomed to sacrifice to this god the noblest of their sons. But more recently, secretly buying and nurturing children, they had sent these to the sacrifice. And when an investigation was made, some of those who had been sacrificed were discovered to have been suppositious. When they had given thought to these things and saw their enemy encamped before their walls, they were filled with superstitious dread, for they believed that they had neglected the honors of the gods that had been established by their fathers. In their zeal to make amends for their omission, they selected two hundred of the noblest children and sacrificed them publicly, and others who were under suspicion sacrificed themselves voluntarily, in number not less than three hundred. There was in their city a bronze image of Baal Hamun, extending its hands, palms up and sloping toward the ground, so that each of the children, when placed thereon, rolled down and fell into a sort of gaping pit filled with fire. End quote. From a contemporary Western perspective, it doesn't get more terrifying than that. Now, you might be expecting me to bring up a ton of caveats or point out all the flaws in this anecdote from Diodorus like I have in many past episodes that dealt with child sacrifice, but, well, I'm not. I hoped I've already drilled it into everyone enough that we can't take Greco-Roman descriptions of Carthaginian child sacrifice at face value. These are historians who were raised to, if not despise, then disapprove of Punic culture. It's in their best interest to portray Carthage as an inhuman, monstrous state. But, despite all the obvious bias, I do actually believe that some sort of child sacrifice did occur during the siege. Obviously, you know, I can't attest to the whole giant statue of Baal Hamun with the burning embers, but I am willing to bet that the panic amongst the citizens and the Kohanim, remember those are the priests, was enough to necessitate some sort of drastic sacrifice. And this isn't much of a stretch to suggest. I mean, the archaeological evidence does indicate an increasing number of children buried in the Tophet who died of immolation rather than just natural causes. That's just the fact of the matter. So now we're going to leave Carthage under siege by Agathocles for a bit and circle back to Syracuse. Don't forget, when Agathocles had set out for Carthage, he had left Syracuse under siege, leaving most of his army behind to defend the city while he ran a Carthaginian blockade. His brother, a general named Antander, now stood atop the final bulwark of Greek Sicily against Punic domination. And a Carthaginian army, led by that magnate descendant who shall continue to go unnamed to avoid confusion, was of course at their gates. And then, all of a sudden, the Carthaginian army received an urgent request from back home. It came bearing news of Agathocles' victory at White Tunis, and begging for reinforcements. So the commander, or more accurately, Rob Mahinet, knew he had to follow through on the siege quickly, before he was forced to, you know, divide up his army, and send part of it home into the hands of the Adurim. First, he went with the more roguish option. He requested an audience with the Syracusans outside their walls, and once a great crowd had gathered, he announced that it had actually been Agathocles who lost the Battle of White Tunis, and Agathocles instead of Hanno, who lay dead upon the field. This caused mass mourning among the common folk and citizens of Syracuse, 
The streets were frigid with the numbing chill of total defeat. But this was only the mood in the streets. In the assembly halls and estates of Syracuse, the mood was more cautious. The statesmen of the city suspected Carthaginian treachery and refused to believe that Agathocles was dead. They realized that if they wanted to pull Syracuse through to victory, they needed to take control of the situation. They needed to stop the plummeting morale of the masses before they tore each other apart to escape a doomed city. So they exiled any citizens they knew were opposed to either them or Agathocles. But if anything, this move only heightened the city's anguish. About 8,000 citizens from hundreds of households in all walks of life were forced to leave to submit themselves to a hostile foreign army. The subsequent bereavement was so intense that Antander, the brother of Agathocles, who technically was in charge of the Syracusan army and thus the whole city, really, was inclined to just give up, to surrender personally to Carthage. His counselors and other officials in Agathocles' tyranny had to convince him to keep resisting. But soon after, a historical fluke turned the course of things on its head. A single Syracusan ship, bearing a message from the very much alive Agathocles, was approaching the harbor. The message, of course, was that Agathocles had done it. He had not only managed to elude the Carthaginian navy and land on their soil, but he had just won a major battle against them, and now marched on their capital immediately after. Now, obviously, that's like the exact opposite of what most of Syracuse thinks happened to their glorious leader. So Carthage could not let that damn ship make it past their blockade. Thus, a chase began. The lone Syracusan ship threaded through the blockade and shot into the harbor with the Carthaginians on its tail. This, in turn, caused droves of Syracusans to pour into the docks to get a view of such an important spectacle. And the Carthaginian commander, noticing how sparse his view of the city looked, decided to take action. He ordered an immediate assault on the walls, which elite infantry approached and started to scale. The besiegers managed to take the fight to the battlements, and things were looking okay before the distracted Syracusans in the harbor realized that their walls were about to be breached. Citizens stampeded over to the walls to join the defense, and the Carthaginian infantry had to fall back. Their commander broke the siege and resigned to just send some of his men back to Carthage to join the Libyan defense. So let's follow these reinforcements out of Sicily, over the Mediterranean, and into the verdant hills of Carthage. When they arrived, they would have discovered that Agathocles had broken the siege. He was running out of supplies, and besides, he was so outnumbered that even if he did break into Carthage, his army couldn't survive the resistance. Instead, he pulled back to Tunis, which at this point, remember, is just a town in the southern periphery of Carthage rather than, you know, the capital of Tunisia. Leaving a garrison there, he took the rest of his army and set out for the coast south of Cape Bon to sack as many citizens as he could. A settlement called Neapolis, although that certainly was not its actual name, was first to fall in this new campaign. Then, Agathocles moved even further south and laid siege to a town called Hadramettum. It was while occupied with this siege that Agathocles managed to recruit a Libyan tribe led by King Aelimas to his cause. 
Elymas was most likely the ruler of a semi-nomadic kingdom further inland from Hadramentum, who saw this as an opportunity to break free from Carthage's domineering grip. He probably didn't care who Agathocles was or why he was fighting. Elymas just wanted prosperity for his own people. Agathocles, in turn, probably understood this. After all, he was only working with Elymas for one thing, his cavalry. Now, we're not going to get into all this now because I have a whole episode on the Carthaginian military tradition planned, but just know that Libyan cavalry, especially from a kingdom called Numidia, was incredibly skilled, and several decades from now, Carthage would be fully utilizing this deadly skill on the battlefield. So with all these cavalry units on his side, Agathocles not only had a larger army, but also a unique mobility compared to any Carthaginian force that might attempt to counteract his siege of Hadramidim. And as it turns out, there was such a Carthaginian force on the way. Not to Hadramidim, but instead to Tunis. This was a smart move on Carthage's part. It split Agathocles' attention between two cities that were separated by miles. Every man Agathocles had with him counted, and that included the ones in the Tunisian garrison that Carthage was marching towards currently. So he quickly broke off from Hadramentum and headed north. Now, he knew that he wasn't going to make it to Tunis in time, so in an act of military genius, well, at least if Diodorus Siculus is a reliable source, Agathocles positioned his men atop a small mountain within view of both Tunis and Hadramentum. That night, as they made camp, he ordered that as many fires as possible be lit. The Carthaginians, who had made it to the defenses of Tunis, saw the eerie glow in the distance and overestimated the size of Agathocles' army. Startled, they pulled back to Carthage proper, not wanting to tempt fate by fighting outnumbered. That same night, the people of Hadramentum, thinking the fires were from a wave of Greek reinforcements, surrendered their city. In a single night, Agathocles had won two battles without losing a single man. Hell, without even being at either battlefield. Carthage was in no position to strike again, which left the way open for Agathocles to continue his march along the coast. Uninterrupted, he captured a good handful of places, pushing as far south as an influential city named Thapsus. But Carthage finally gathered enough strength and retaliated by attacking Tunis once more. And when I say Carthage gathered enough strength, I actually just mean that those reinforcements from the army besieging Syracuse had finally landed on home soil. So Agathocles trekked back up to Tunis and overran the Carthaginian siege camp during a night attack. Right as he stamped that whole fire out, though, a new one rose up behind him. This time, it was in his own ranks. Elimas, the Libyan king who was bringing all the cavalry to the Greek table, decided that now was the time to revolt and see what spoils he might take. Unfortunately for him, though, Agathocles crushed him and his cavalry units in a battle that is left unexplained by the sources. And it's here that I want to point out how much the balance of power in this war teeters between belligerents. I kind of envision it like a metronome, with one side of the metronome representing Carthage's interests and the other side representing Agathocles. The key characteristic of this whole war, this whole crisis, is this pendulum. It's going to swing back and forth and back and forth 
at a ridiculous rate as we continue. So feel free to pause or skip around in the episode when you need to. Case in point, the pendulum, after all those setbacks Agathocles just faced, swings back in Greek favor as we transition over to Sicily and check up on that magnet general tasked with taking Syracuse. His failed assault on the Syracusan walls, you know the one where he tried scaling them with infantry while the populace was distracted by that messenger ship, had ended pretty poorly. So poorly, in fact, that his army had to abandon their camp and head into the Sicilian countryside, foraging for supplies. Once the army was recovered, the Carthaginian strategy switched from a direct attack on Syracuse to a steady wear and tear of its many alliances. The Carthaginians maintained a blockade of the Syracusan harbor, while the army went from settlement to settlement in eastern Sicily, either capturing them by force or persuading them to join the Punic cause, usually with a bribe. Once this magnet commander was confident enough that his army had enough power behind it to punch through the Syracusan defenses once and for all, he returned to Syracuse to try his luck. But either his confidence was unfounded, or his luck was running low, because this second attempt was not going to end well for him or his countrymen. The pendulum just keeps swinging. It all went down something like this. The Carthaginian force, which was made up of a lot of Greek soldiers by now, was marching through the suburbs of Syracuse to a vulnerable position in the wall, with that magnet general himself among their ranks. Now, I don't know how many of you've ever tried to march through narrow streets surrounded by hundreds of heavily armored soldiers, all while trying to stay in formation. I know I definitely haven't, but it sure as hell sounds really difficult to pull off. Especially when you consider the fighting formation of the majority of these units, because they were Greek, was the phalanx, which requires a ton of coordination and coherence to be effective. So already, these guys aren't in the best conditions to be assaulting a city. But what if we throw an extra challenge in the mix? And that challenge comes in the form of Syracusan defenders, who know these narrow streets like the backs of their hands, coming charging down at the disordered lines from out of nowhere. The Magnet General tried pulling back, but it was far too late. The Syracusans scattered his army, captured him alive, and brought him into the walls that he had tried so relentlessly to breach. Here, he was tortured to death in a public square, while his severed head was shipped over to Libya, a new trophy for Agathocles. But before we can get back to Agathocles and his plans for this magnet trophy, we have to go over some events in Sicily that were directly caused by this most recent Carthaginian defeat. So we mentioned how before Carthage attacked Syracuse the second time, they spent a while going from city to city, growing their army with Greek volunteers, right? Well, some of these Greek volunteers, who had just fled Syracuse in droves after the battle, remember, were from Akragas, and these Akragites, if that's how you say it, marched home and informed their statesmen about the new shift in political landscape they had just witnessed. Syracuse was weakened and distracted. Carthage's presence had evaporated except for on the seas. It was time for Akragas to make a play for domination of the island. So they betrayed the crumbling Greco-Punic alliance, and sent their army to assert dominance over all the eastern territories Carthage had so recently visited themselves. 
Kragas ended up with Gela, while the Syracusans held on to Leontini and Camarina. And the whole time, the Carthaginian fleet was just chilling in Syracuse's harbor, keeping up the blockade and keeping out any incoming grain. If anything, Akragas' betrayal had turned out to be more of a help than a hindrance for them. Okay now, we can get back to that Carthaginian general's head and its journey into the expectant hands of Agathocles. He wanted to make good use of it, after all. So the moment the ship landed and delivered the head to him, he set off on horseback riding around to Punic settlements and a Carthaginian army camp, waving it around and stirring lamentations from the heartbroken civilians. Remember, that head didn't just represent the death of that one general. It meant the death of his entire army. After all this parading through enemy territory, he and his men returned to camp, where a giant celebration ensued. There were games, and probably some speech-making, and definitely some gambling, and most importantly, there was feasting, which meant that there was drinking. And one thing you have to know about the ancient Greeks was that they were heavy, heavy drinkers. Now granted, the stuff they drank, wine, was already weaker than what we modern wine drinkers are used to. Additionally, the Greeks had this practice of mixing wine with water, they actually had these elaborately decorated mixing bowls, which get mentioned a lot in the Iliad and the Odyssey, if you're curious. Despite these two factors, though, when a group of Greeks started pounding drinks back, it took a lot to stop them. Couple this with the fact that the Sicilian and Macedonian Greeks tended not to water down their wine as much. The Macedonians often just drank it straight. Plus, we already know that the men, especially the soldiers of Syracuse, were heavy drinkers, and Agathocles fit this archetype like a glove. Okay, so we get it, right? The Greeks were pretty much alcoholics. Where does this tie into the feast Agathocles is throwing? Well, here all these guys are, sitting around a table, drinking wine, devouring meat, swapping war stories, and one of the Syracusan generals gets in an argument with who else but Agathocles' son. The fight is over a joke the general made. A joke about the son and his stepmom, the wife of Agathocles. Apparently, there might have been some twisted familial love triangles going on in the family. And as the argument between the two progressed, the general pressed the issue. That was not a wise move, because the now plastered and enraged son of Agathocles pulls out his sword and runs the general through. The next morning, the soldiers demanded that Agathocles' son be put to death. This general he had murdered in his fit of passion was pretty popular, apparently. But obviously, Agathocles refused to execute his own kid. Carthage, who was after all posted nearby, and probably had spies in the camp, took the opportunity to create a rift out of the situation. They used a combination of bribery and good reasoning to convince some of the disgruntled generals to mutiny at a specified time. Agathocles hears of this planned treachery and, in the nick of time, convinces the generals to stay with a rousing speech. Then he leads them all out to the Carthaginian army, who are out in the open thinking that Agathocles' army will be tearing itself apart soon. Instead, they charge the unprepared Carthaginian army and win yet another battle for Agathocles. But the pendulum always swings in the other direction. In the midst of their most recent defeat, 
Carthage regrouped and changed their strategy once more. Their focus was now the various Libyan and Numidian tribes that oscillated between alliance and desertion. If they could just keep those tribes on the same side for long enough to win a decisive battle against Agathocles, or hell, at the very least prevent them from switching over to the Greek side, they might just come out of this crisis with their empire intact. So the Carthaginian army arranged a meeting with a particular Libyan tribe known as the Zufones. Agathocles naturally had scouts in the area, who immediately informed him of the plan. So, fresh from victory against the Carthaginian army, he went straight for the exact same army, this time intent on delivering the killing blow. But the Carthaginians had scouts of their own, too. I mean, everyone has scouts. We're in nomad cavalry territory. It's like the ancient equivalent of a U-2 drone. But anyway, the Carthaginians hear from their U-2 drone, that's a weird sentence to write, that Agathocles is on his way to interrupt their diplomatic processions. They have to cut the talk short and take up a defensive position immediately. Carthage's army thus positions itself on an open grassy hill surrounded on all sides by small rivers. The Zufones, having just agreed to the Carthaginian terms, join the battle and promise to harass and mislead the incoming Greek army as much as possible. Starting to see why this whole Numidian cavalry thing is so damn useful. Now, the Zufones put up a pretty good show of things, but they couldn't steer Agathocles away from the Carthaginian force, no better than they could have distracted a lion from its prey. Agathocles heads right for the hill, but before he can reach his foes, he must first cross the rivers that circumscribe them, preferably in an organized manner. And it's in the middle of this river crossing that Carthage chooses to strike. Now, according to the primary sources, it seems like they were going for something close to a double envelopment here. If you don't know what that is, it's basically a fancy military term for when one force successfully overwhelms another force from both sides, and then ideally fully surrounds them. You can also just call it a pincer move. But there's a reason that I went in depth about the double envelopment. It's going to be very, very, very important later on in the history of Carthage. So keep it in the back of your mind in the meanwhile. We'll get there soon. But I digress. The Carthaginians succeed in pulling off the double envelopment because of overwhelming numbers. But then all of a sudden, something disrupts what should have been a tidy mop-up job for Carthage. It's just that pendulum metaphor, you know? It's gotta keep swinging. The Zufones and the nomadic Libyans fighting in Agathocles' army just pull out of the melee and ride off. It seems that they spotted an opportunity in Carthage's wide-open camp that was full of provisions and loot, and they took it. This probably distracted both contenders for a second, and then they went back to their infantry brawl in the middle of the river. Agathocles is about to pull off something truly miraculous if we take the sources at face value. He's going to break out of a complete encirclement. He just barely manages it by forming a sort of wedge with his men and punching through a vulnerable side of the Carthaginian envelopment. And this turned the tides of the whole affair completely. Now it was Carthage who was on the run, back to their hilltop camp. And oh yeah, I can't forget this uh, <clears throat> patriotic little detail that Diodorus Siculus slips in there at the end. 
Apparently, the Greek mercenary cavalry fighting in Carthage's army were the last to stay in the river and ward off Agathocles from their retreating employers. And in case you didn't get the hint, that's probably some good old-fashioned Greek propaganda. Now that the Carthaginians are pulling back towards their camp, the Libyan cavalry changes directions because it's no longer easy pickings if you gotta deal with a ton of guys there. They ride off the hill, through the rivers, and head for Agathocles' camp instead. But this in turn forces Agathocles to change directions in pursuit of the people that are going to ravage his camp. There's no point in him pursuing the Carthaginians if his army doesn't have anything to eat after. Unfortunately for him, the Libyans are all on horseback, and they plunder most of the camp before the Greek army can catch up to stop them. So if anything, it was the Zufones who were the true victors of this weird three-way encounter. Now I realize that a lot of these events are hard to follow, involve a lot of confusing twists and turns, and aren't that necessary to cover in detail if you think about it, and despite all these challenges, I still think it's worth doing. I mean, look at the battle that we just went over, for an example. You want to know just how obscure, how far removed from popular ancient history it is? So obscure that this battle doesn't even have a name. The only mention of it is from the primary sources, like there's no Wikipedia page you can go and find what I just talked about on. So now you know a lot more than you'll ever need to about a very niche academic field. But isn't that kind of cool at the same time? So from here on out, we're going to give that battle a name, and we'll call it, uh, how about the Battle of the Zufones, because they were kind of the ones that really won. That has a sort of ring to it. By now, it was looking like relying on nomad tribes or even settled Libyans was too dangerous for Agathocles' shaky war effort. Wouldn't it just be better if he got some Greek allies instead? Luckily for him, there were actually some Greeks in North Africa that he could call upon. Let me explain. Back in episode 3, when we talked about the Greek exodus to the west and their subsequent colonization of places like Sicily, Italy, and Gaul, we also mentioned a settlement in North Africa called Cyrene. Lying on the coast of modern-day Libya, east of the Punic city Lepkis Magna, Cyrene was settled by refugees from the island of Santorini, in the Aegean, who were escaping famine and other hardships of the Greek world. In the centuries after its founding, Cyrene occupied a unique position that, while strategically advantageous, was also kind of a burden. It sat on the cusp of two worlds, the Punic lands to the west and the Hellenistic kingdoms, now ruled by the descendants of Alexander the Great, to the east. Though Carthage may have been too distant for Alexander to conquer, Cyrene was just close enough, which is how the city came to be ruled by a guy named Ophelas in the time of our story. Ophelas had been one of the more minor generals in Alexander's army, not as well known as Ptolemy, Antigonus, or Seleucus, but still skilled in his own right. He had survived the brutal wars of succession that followed Alexander's death, after all. And if you want an idea of how messy those conflicts were, I suggest you check out podcaster Dan Carlin's show on the subject, titled Glimpses of Olympias. When the envoys of Agathocles came calling upon Ophelas, they promised him with lands that the Cyrenians had coveted for quite some time. We're talking Lepkis Magna and beyond that, 
a slew of smaller merchant towns that kept the coffers of Carthage flowing. It was an offer he couldn't refuse, to use an old cliché. So tempting was the prospect of seizing Carthage's mercantile base that Cyrene wasn't even the only Greek city that contributed to Ophelos' new cause. Athens, yeah, you heard me right, Athens actually sent mercenaries to fill up the ranks of the new Greek army being assembled in Cyrene. Apparently, there was also a whole political movement where Athenian citizens went overseas to join Ophelos in his conquest of the Punic world. And let's face it, the spoils that came with it. Almost kind of reminds me of how, like, anti-fascists from around the world signed up to fight Franco in the Spanish Civil War. Although, that is much more of a noble cause. In the end, Ophelos departed Cyrene with 11,000 fighting men and the same number of camp followers. His supply train was huge, but it really had to be because Ophelos was going to use all these extra people to colonize the western lands he had been promised. It took the army two whole months of trekking through arid dry lands and even desert to get up to Agathocles. But to most people involved, it was probably worth it, because once they linked up with their new Greek ally, the material rewards would be immense. Well, this is where things start to go off the rails. I remember when I was first reading about what's gonna happen in a sec, and I audibly exclaimed, no way. The sources decry it as merely devious, the work of a scoundrel, but I prefer to call it an absolute dick move on Agathocles' part. Ophelos and his cosmopolitan army finally made it within sight of Agathocles' camp, and what does Agathocles do? Well, first, he comes out to greet them, except he's with his whole army, and he's already made a speech accusing Ophelos of working with the Carthaginians. And then they all march on Ophelos' camp without any warning and surround everyone. Ophelos is killed. We don't know if it was by a soldier of Agathocles or one of his own. But most of his men are still alive, still heavily armed, and still eager to take the fight to Carthage. So, Agathocles has an easy time impressing most of them into his own army, and just enslaves the rest. And that, folks, is how you double the size of your army and supplies overnight, while simultaneously alienating all of your allies. But hey, desperate times breed desperate measures. Around the same time that Agathocles was carrying out a diplomatic kick to the nuts against Cyrene and mainland Greece, Bomilcar, that dastardly Punic politician who abandoned his countrymen at White Tunis in the last episode, was also betraying his own. Now I know it's been a while since we brought up that name, but don't go thinking Bomilcar moved on from his ambitions to rule Carthage dynastically. See, after the Battle of White Tunis, once he had left his co-general Hanno on the field to die, Bomilcar marched straight back to Carthage and put a spin on the news of defeat. The desperate Adrim let him off with an uncharacteristic slap on the wrist and tasked him with defending the capital rather than nailing him to a cross, as per usual. It might have also helped that no one knew of his betrayal of Hanno at White Tunis yet. So since then, Bomilcar had been biding his time, but the problem ended up being the uneven momentum of the war. You know, one minute Carthage is doing just fine, and the next they're evading chaos by the skin of their teeth. 
All the twists and turns kept him too distracted to claim absolute power. In the meantime, he resorted to just forming sacred band units with all of his political opponents and sending them off to die in battle against Libyans. Exactly the kind of thing you'd expect. So, Bomokar took this sort of break in the action while Agathocles was dealing with Ophelos to make his move. On a routine inspection of the troops in that town Agathocles had captured earlier, called Neapolis, he staged a coup. Incidentally, we want to point out here, Neapolis in Greek means new city, Neapolis. So this Neapolis was probably called Kart Hadasht, which meant new city in Punic. So it actually would have shared a name with Carthage, Carthage, because remember, Carthage is just the Roman translation of Karth Hadasht. Anyway, let's set the scene of Bomokar's plot. Bomokar is in an open town square, with several units of loyal sacred band accompanying him as a guard. Surrounded by this conspiratorial inner circle is the garrison of the city, and presumably a bunch of other statesmen or members of the Adarim that Bomokar intends to deal with in this coup. In the middle of the ceremony, it's just called a troop inspection inside the sources, so can't really give you more details than that, Bomokar gives the signal for his men to launch the coup. The square is engulfed in slaughter in a matter of seconds. I mean, imagine what your reaction would be if you were watching some assembly and then all of a sudden armed men just started picking people out of the crowd and killing them on the spot. The garrison of quote-unquote Neapolis after being completely thrown off guard for several minutes by what was happening, finally managed to form ranks and use their superior numbers to their advantage. They tried to close in on Bomokar's sacred band and trap them in a corner, but Bomokar foresaw this and retreated into the narrow streets. But one thing that I don't think Bomokar anticipated was just how many of the average people living in the city would resist him. The fight carried on all day as residents of the multi-story tenements and townhouses, uh, characteristic of Punic cities, rained rocks, tiles, and other projectiles down at the treacherous sacred band, who had to keep marching through the winding, cramped streets to avoid being overwhelmed in one place. Then, the city garrison made their way onto the rooftops as well, and kept up the barrage with volleys of arrows, stones, and javelins. Lot more dangerous than tiles now. Eventually, Bomokar's forces were trapped inside a market, and after murdering civilian hostages they had taken along the way, finally surrendered. I think we all know what happens to Bomokar now. It's the same fate that Hanno the Great met when his bloody insurrection ended in failure a generation earlier. The civilians and soldiers of Neapolis that Bomokar had just antagonized so viciously, got to torture him to death in the same square where he had started the coup earlier. Once more, the Carthaginian Republic refused to bow down to the will of a single man. Right as Carthage dodged this catastrophe, however, a new one threatened to fracture their resolve. Agathocles, having just gained an extra 11,000 infantry with his downright villainous betrayal of Ophelos, was ready to wreak fresh havoc on the Punic countryside. So far, most of the fighting has occurred either near Carthage itself, on the Cape Bon Peninsula, or on the coastline directly below it at those uh, 
prosperous seaside settlements, Neapolis, Hadrametum, Thapsus. And don't worry, a Wonders of History Instagram account with detailed maps for the entire first season is in the works. I expect that all this geography is just going in one ear and right out the other for most of us, so I hope that will help give everyone a sense of where exactly all this is happening in the world. But anyway, Agathocles didn't want to go waste all these troops fighting for the same territory he had been for the past couple years. No, he was going to make Carthage scramble to keep up with him. Thus, he chose to go north of Carthage proper, to the city of Utica, which had been so far untouched by his invasion. And fair warning, this siege is going to be as unrestrained as the same ones at Motia, Salinas, Syracuse, and Himera. Agathocles took the Utican's by complete surprise. His army stormed into the suburbs and countryside and captured hundreds of people that didn't make it inside the walls in time. These hostages met one of the cruelest fates I've covered so far in this season. They were strung up, often still kicking and screaming, onto the Greek siege towers to be used as both a psychological weapon and a physical shield against the Punic defenders. I want you to really think about that for a second. Let's say that you're one of these citizens of Utica, and when the Greek army arrives at your city, you're compelled to don your armor, pick up your spear, and defend the walls with the rest of the garrison. So you're standing on the battlements, surrounded by your friends and your family, scared out of your mind, and as the enemy siege towers approach, you can see your own people, some of whom you may even know personally, tied or nailed to the very structures you have to destroy if you want to preserve your city. Some are dead, some are still thrashing around, pleading to be let down or maybe even begging to be put out of their misery. How do you feel? And what do you do? Well, the Utican's had to make that heart-wrenching choice for themselves. As the towers approached, they retaliated with missile fire, killing their own civilians in the process. But their resistance was not enough to stop Agathocles from seizing the walls. The fight got messier as it moved into the streets and homes. We hear descriptions similar to all those other bloody sieges we've covered. You know the ones. People backed into alleys, dropping bricks and tiles on soldiers' heads from their apartments, skirmishes on the rooftops. All those that fled were rounded up, either in temples or marketplaces, and executed on the spot on Agathocles' orders. And just like that, the sack of Utica was complete. Soon after, Agathocles departed from Utica, or what remained of it at this point, and captured another coastal city named Hippocra further north. He wanted to be confident that his army could hold the territory in an emergency, because Agathocles needed to make a tough call. You see, the situation back in Sicily was getting serious enough that it demanded his immediate return. Akraga still hadn't given up its bid for power, or at the very least, independence from Syracusan hegemony. In fact, a prestigious Akragite general had assembled an army to match Antander's. Plus, the Carthaginians were still blockading Syracuse's harbor, making starvation an impending reality. A begrudging Agathocles was compelled to sail for home, leaving his son, named Archagathus, in charge of the Libyan campaign. Archagathus didn't want to be complacent. He knew he would have to keep taking the fight to Carthage if he was going to hold out in time for his father to return. 
So he sent Eumachus, a skilled general in Agathocles' inner circle, to go capture the rest of the northern region near Utica. Eumachus went further inland to subdue the more nomadic Libyan tribes and kingdoms. And I know I keep using the term Libyan or Numidian, but don't go thinking these cities were politically united or anything. The various peoples and places that Diodorus describes, often sensationally I might add, had diverse customs, cultures, living standards, and opinions of Carthage. Some of them had to be conquered by Eumachus before they submitted. Others gladly joined the Greeks to seek revenge on their Punic masters. The success of this first expedition prompted Archagathus to attempt another one, this time even further west into Mauritania, which, when we're talking about the ancient world, describes this northern strip on the coasts of modern-day Algeria and Morocco, rather than the whole West African country. Here we find Diodorus Siculus at his most fanciful, with descriptions of mythical beasts, really just apes and wildcats, and bizarre tribal customs. All of these invasions caused a surge of refugees to flow into Carthage, and although this ate at the grain stores stockpiled in the capital, it also presented the Adrim with an opportunity. Suddenly, they were able to muster not one, not two, but three armies to reclaim the north and expel the Greeks from Libya once and for all. Each army, 10,000 strong, was led by one of these three acclaimed statesmen, Hanno, Himoko, and Adderbal. They were to simultaneously march on the inland territory Eumachus had just taken and the coastal cities like Utica and Hippocra. And in doing so, they would force Archagathus to divide his own army, making it much easier to defeat. The plan worked perfectly in practice. Archagathus, realizing his dilemma, led a detachment of his army back south to Tunis, while the rest of the men were sent after two of the Carthaginian armies. Carthage crushed a force led by Eumachus and ambushed another Greek general while he marched into position. These two losses collapsed the Greek war effort, and the dregs of Agathocles' broken army retreated behind the walls of Tunis, back where this had all started. How fitting that it would be here where they would make their final stand. The three Carthaginian commanders quickly surrounded Tunis from all sides. There will be no escape for those who brought so much death and destruction to their homeland. Panicking, Archagathus pleads with his father for assistance, and Agathocles heads over immediately. The thing is, though, it's not like Agathocles can bring any reinforcements at this point. I mean, you know, there's kind of a Carthaginian fleet in the middle of the Syracusan harbor. But Agathocles actually managed to pull off an incredible feat and sail over to Libya for a second time. He commandeered a handful of ships and weaved through the Carthaginian blockade, surprising his pursuers at the last second with a small fleet of Etruscan mercenaries that he had hired in the course of the war against Akragas. The dumbstruck admiral of the Carthaginian fleet killed himself out of shame and probably justified fear of how harshly the Council of 104 would punish him. I mean, seriously, Agathocles should not have been able to make it through a second time. And this time, he had actually managed to dissolve the blockade entirely. Sometimes I forget, you know, just how much of a military genius this guy is. With newfound access to the sea, Syracuse could at long last import enough grain to feed their people properly. Okay, this is it. 
we've reached the final stretch of the crisis. This last swing of the pendulum will determine if the Western Mediterranean will remain under Punic domination. From an overarching historical perspective, the stakes of this oft-forgotten conflict are rather high. Agathocles arrives in Tunis and does not care for what he finds there. His army, once mostly Greek infantry and cavalry with a smattering of mercenaries here and there, is now an assortment of units, fighting styles, and peoples. Some Celts and Iberians, a lot of Italians and Italian Greeks, a sizable portion of Libyans from various tribes and kingdoms who allied with the Gathicles at one point or another, and of course, the meager Syracusan citizens who have followed their tyrant through hell and back these past two years. The only remaining option for this motley crew is a direct assault on the Carthaginian army, which is encamped in the hills outside Tunis, taking their sweet time to act. Agathocles leads his outnumbered army in an uphill charge against a highly trained, fully provisioned, well-rested army of 30,000. I hope I don't need to explain the outcome of a measure that drastic. The routed Greeks pull back into Tunis once more, but Agathocles knows it's over. Proving just how much of a scoundrel he was, he sails back to Sicily, this time for good. Yeah, that's right. Agathocles, the one who undertook this whole expedition in the first place, abandoned his men and even Archagathus, his own son, to a grim fate. I think Father's Day might have been a little icy after that whole incident. Archagathus was subsequently murdered by one of his own furious Greek generals, who then surrendered to Carthage in open peace talks. That general, a guy by the name of Archesilaus, actually lived out the rest of his life comfortably as a citizen of Carthage. Many other soldiers, although given the option to return home by the Carthaginians, followed his lead. They were disgusted by the betrayal of Agathocles and chose to work for Carthage as mercenaries in the coming years instead. And I imagine they probably formed a unique little Sicilian Greek community or neighborhood in their new home city. In 307 BC, a treaty was signed between Carthage and Syracuse. Carthage would keep all their Sicilian territory west of the river Halicus, which meant that they still occupied about like a third of the island. Agathocles would be left alone if he promised not to interfere with Carthaginian affairs, which he didn't. I think both sides of the conflict were pretty much sick of each other at this point. And so ends the seventh and final Sicilian War. Well folks, we did it. We finally reached the end of the Sicilian Wars, the bloody, brutal, riveting, seemingly unending labyrinthian conflicts that defined Carthaginian foreign policy for two centuries. Throughout these wars, Carthage went from a newly independent colonial power to an imperial republic that stretched halfway across the Mediterranean. A whole dynasty of republican leaders, the Maganids, were tied inextricably to these wars. They rose and fell because of them. Now, as much as it's a little sad to say goodbye to a subject that's devoured so much of my time for the past three months, I'm also excited to be moving on to the next phase of Carthaginian history. But where should I even begin to pick up all the pieces that the Sicilian Wars left behind? Well, I think I'll start with one of the most profound effects that they had on future Carthage. The Carthaginian military. 
Carthage's military emerged from the Sicilian Wars a robust, well-oiled, incredibly diverse institution, one that famous Carthaginian leaders like Hamilcar and Hannibal Barca would later use to nearly destroy the Roman Republic. So, the 11th episode of our series on Carthage will cover the development of the Carthaginian army and navy, and the various units that they relied on, and the everyday life of one of these soldiers. All this and more next time on Wonders of History.